Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Telling you what, Decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the Decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up, too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to deck.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, Steve, I want you to do um, two things, but you got to do it in the in the order, in this order. Explain, like, what is a nutria? And where are they from and all that? And then explain who you are and where you're from and all that. All right. Yeah, sure. A nutria is a big semi-aquatic rodent that's native to South America. Uh, at one time, it was highly prized for its fur, and it was introduced throughout the world in uh, fur farms and things like that to create a, a economic resource for rural folks. And uh, similar to mink ranches and that sort of thing. It's intermediate in size between a muskrat and a beaver, uh, for those familiar with our North American semi-aquatic. Like how many pounds? Uh, the average is probably between 15 and 17 pounds for an adult oh, male. Oh, big. Yeah, well, they're big, yeah. And, uh, you know, I guess if I were to equate what's, it to What's a, that? Yeah, compare it to something. Probably a... Uh, raccoon. Yeah, raccoon. Bigger than a woodchuck. Uh, similar in size to a, a raccoon. I think the biggest female that we caught was about 21 pounds. And, you know, when they're gravid and full of little ones, uh, they can uh, tip the scales at higher than the males do. So, what's the word you just used? Gravid? Pregnant? Gravid? Am I getting all academic no, here? I'm going to start throwing that word around <laughs> all over the place. Pregnant is gravid? <laughs> Say my, my God, wife, I think my so. wife's gravid. Yeah. Get out my thesaurus app. Yanni will check it. Yanni will fact check yeah. you on that. Um, so, so they're really kind of an interesting animal too, though. Uh, 
a lot of people don't know this, but they get fascinated when they hear that the nipples on a female nutria are located along their back, so the young can actually suckle when they're swimming in the water. Didn't know and, that either. Uh, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. Um, I, you know, I have like a, I've never laid eyes on a nutria. You know, I hadn't either before I took this job that uh, that I took to try to help eliminate them from the Chesapeake Bay. But uh, they're uh, a pretty pretty amazing animal, very adaptable. Uh, they're herbivores, as most rodents are. Uh, they dig up the roots and tubers, the, the underground parts of plants in the wetland ecosystems here. And in doing so, they expose it to uh, tremendous erosion with the tidal influx of water and and whatnot so and that's how muskrat feeds too right yeah steve yeah i mean yeah muskrats will eat you know one of the things that they, they're most known for is they'll eat cattail roots and parts of cattails but they'll all i mean they'll eat clams rarely but mostly they eat aquatic vegetation yeah. and they excavate when, it when they're yeah the excavating from banks is what causes folks what to gets get muskrats in trouble with folks is their denning activities more than their feeding activities is they dig bank dens and make a under usually an underwater entrance and then they'll burrow up into a bank and then make a big hollow in the bank and then you know some dude will be like mowing his lawn and all of a sudden falls into a muskrat bank den that's what gets muskrats in trouble you used to get free haircuts What's that? I used to get free haircuts from some ladies that had a muskrat problem in their pond at their little haircuttery up in Plattsburgh, New York. So you trap muskrats for haircuts? Yeah, I trapped muskrats. I was the muskrat man to them, and I got my haircut for free. So good. It's a barter economy. So you, all right, we'll get into this whole trapping thing. So, but now that now that you broached the subject, we're going to have to explore the fact that you were trapping before you became a government trapper. I yes, I was. Uh, so now, I guess now's the time where you can tell us about who you are. Then yeah, we'll get sure. Back into nutrients. I just wanted a little teaser about those back nipples. Oh yes. Uh, so <laughs> I'm Steve Kendrat. I'm a wildlife biologist. I work for the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services Program. It's a small agency, about two thousand people nationwide. That's it's, it's uh, within the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service for uh, in the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And our primary mission is to provide federal leadership in the, the resolving human wildlife conflicts. And our primary mission areas are to protect agriculture, uh, human health and safety, property, and increasingly uh, natural resources, which is how we're entwined with this whole nutrient eradication project to try to save the uh, Chesapeake Bay marshlands. So I've been with that uh, agency for about 18 years now. I started out as a, uh, a wildlife biologist at an airport, uh, at actually a military base in Virginia. I also worked at two of the Washington, D.C. airports. But in 2002, I took this job in, in uh, Cambridge, Maryland. At, Hold on, question. What's, sure. the, what's an airport need a biologist for? Well, so uh, birds and planes both occupy the same airspace and uh, oftentimes to great detriment to both the birds and the planes. So uh, we actually have a very robust program throughout the country. Uh, Most of our major airports, we've got wildlife biologists stationed there uh, working to uh, provide guidance to the airport about how to minimize uh, 
wildlife habitat and attractants on the airfield to keep them away from the runways and taxiways. Uh, deer, coyotes, other mammals are also problems that get on the runways and get hit by planes during takeoff and landing and, and so on and so forth. So it's a, a pretty big uh, human health and safety component of our program. Yep. Yeah, because that could be like a lot of deaths all at once. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, yeah, the dude that had the, the dude that put the plane down in the Hudson yeah. hit a goose. Yep, uh, several geese. Several uh, geese. Yep, Miracle on the Hudson was the result of a, a, a bird strike with Canada geese. Uh, there was also a, a tragic uh, Air Force accident back in, gosh, I don't even remember when that was now. Well, it's been so long since I've worked on the airport stuff, but in Elmendorf Air Force Base. Uh-huh. Uh, a, uh, a plane went down from that and killed uh, quite a few service folks. So went down from a goose or bird collision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's you know it, you know not to scare the flying public. I know you guys are be on a plane soon. Not a lot to worry about. It's a it's a low risk but a high consequence kind of yep. uh, kind of thing. So uh, it's something our the airports take very seriously. The FAA takes very seriously and. Uh, as a result, we've got a pretty robust program nationwide. Uh, so most of those biologists are employed by your agency, then. Yeah, and so our agency is kind of unique in that it's not—it doesn't get a huge slug of federal appropriations or tax dollars to do the work we do. We work through cooperative agreements with other federal agencies, uh, municipalities, airports, that sort of thing, private individuals. Uh, so it's very much a cost-sharing type program where the, the recipients of the services that we provide are paying for at least some portion, if not all, of the service that we provide. So we're not a regulatory agency like some of the other uh, federal agencies, the Fish and Wildlife Service, that enforce regulations about endangered species and, yeah. and all that kind of thing. We're very much problem-solving service orientation. Um, and so, yeah, it's uh, it's been a really interesting agency to work for. And this project in the Chesapeake Bay with Anutria is funded by the Fish and Wildlife Service, the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, which is in the Department of Interior. Um, they're the folks that oversee the the National Wildlife Refuge System. So, so to to jump into the Nutria, like just to lay the groundwork on the Nutria situation, Chesapeake Bay, which is is a pretty fascinating story. But how did it begin? Like, when did they come in, and why did they come in? So they were brought. And in. as a side note, can they live? Are they can they adapt to northern climates, or do they they like to have, they, they, or or do they need warmer weather and not severe winters? They are limited in their northern distribution by by winter weather. Uh, however, uh, here in Maryland is about the northernmost distribution on the east coast. Okay. Uh, but Nutria also they've been established in seventeen or eighteen different states in the U.S. Uh, introduced in a number of more, but they haven't become established. Uh, a lot of people don't know that uh, your home city of Seattle and, and uh, Portland um, are home to the Nutria as well. Really, where? Um, all over in the coastal uh, wetlands and a lot of the a lot of the parks in uh, Portland, Oregon. Uh, people feed carrots and stuff like that. It's Kind of crazy. So you don't have to go far to. Man, to I thought, see I thought the reason I'd never seen one is I'd always lived in the northern tier states. Yeah, no, huh. they're limited in the to the coastal distribution because of the temperate climate there. Yep. But, uh, um, 
So where was I introduced? Oh, yeah, how, they, in yeah, Blackwater. how and why did they come into? How and why did they come into the Ches- Chesapeake Bay? Like who so, put them there and for what reason? So the nutria were brought to the Chesapeake region in 1943 or thereabouts. Um, there was two entities that had uh, nutria brought in. The Blackwater actually had the, the refuge itself had a fur bear research station at one time. And they housed nutria, and they were doing uh, nutria research as well as muskrat and that sort of thing. But there were also some private uh, entrepreneurs that were bringing nutria in to farm them. And uh, for some reason, uh, that never really took off economically. And eventually, the farms either went out of business, and they released their animals, or the conditions just became dilapidated, and they escaped and whatnot. Did that but coincide they, with the drop in fur prices overall? No, that was uh, quite a bit, I think, before uh, the drop in fur prices. And so Nutria didn't really become of an ecological impact in the Chesapeake Bay region until probably the late 1960s, 1970s. And that's pretty typical for a lot of uh, introduced invasive species is that they'll they'll exist at fairly low levels for an extended period of time and then begin to grow exponentially. And once they hit that sort of critical mass in numbers, then that population can just like explode and go through the roof. And so that's what happened throughout the 1970s and 80s. And they estimated at one point that Blackwater was probably home to over 50,000 nutria. And um, <clears throat> that corresponded with a very significant decline in uh, emergent marshlands at Chesapeake, uh, or at the Chesapeake Marshlands National Wildlife Complex or Refuge Complex, but that Blackwater unit uh, at one point was about uh, 13,000 or so acres of wetlands, and they lost about 5,000 acres of that over the course of, well, between 1938 and uh, 1999 or so. Almost half. Yeah, it was very significant. You look at the aerial photographs of the core of the heart of Blackwater Refuge, and you can see that it's just been converted almost entirely to open water. So huge ecological impact. And you said emergent marshes? Yeah, emergent marshes are those uh, wetlands where the plants actually emerge out of the water. So you look out and you see vegetation, basically. Oh. As opposed to like a lily pad type environment or that sort of thing. Um, so the, the typical marshes that we have here in the coastal regions of the Chesapeake Bay are characterized by uh, three-square bulrush, um, cattails in some of the more fresher headwaters of the this sort of drainage system and the closer you get to the bay and higher salinities you'll get more needle rush uh, salt hay um, those different types of plant communities so the one that's really critical and the, probably from a wildlife perspective one of the most valuable habitat types is the three square marsh it produces a lot of seeds that are fed on by migrating birds and that sort of thing. And that was the plant you showed me yesterday out in the swamp, right? Yeah. yeah. So if you roll it between your fingers, it's got it's very cr- triangular and cross section. Yeah, yeah. So um, it's it tends to grow in very organic based soils, and it basically accumulates as you know peat over years and years and years of of uh, 
uh, rotting vegetation sort of builds up this peat layer. So it doesn't have a real solid foundation, and therefore it's very vulnerable to erosion when nutria come in and start carving up that root mat. Oh, okay. So while muskrat do feed on the same types of, of uh, plants, uh, three square is very important for muskrat as well, they feed a little bit differently. Um, nutria tend to dig up the tubers, the, the roots of the plants, yep. uh, and do it in a very concentrated area. And even more importantly, what they'll do is they'll dig swim channels, kind of like a beaver does, to get from the tidal waterways into their feeding areas. And what they're essentially doing is creating a little stream bed for the tide to get in and out. Gotcha. So it penetrates yeah. further into the marsh, and then when it comes out, all that material that they've dug up is gathered and... and swept out to sea more or less or at least out to the bay um oh that's an in, yeah because i was hard i was having a hard time picturing how what they were doing was causing so much trouble that's an interesting right. perspective on it not a perspective on it but like an interesting way to explain what's going on is those canals like the same canals beavers dig i never thought of that as being a way for water just to snake its way further yeah, up into exactly. stuff yeah so you get higher salinity water penetrating further into what are typically brackish or even freshwater marshes. Yeah, because beavers will dig those things. You'll, you'll see them 150, 200 yards long yep. sometimes. Oh, yeah. To, to go access willow. Right. Yeah. So that contributes to this erosion problem. What actually happens is that organic muck that this root mat is sort of floating on uh, gets eroded from underneath and the marsh begins to sink. And despite the fact that these are wetland plants, they're very susceptible to and intolerant of changes in the hydrology of the system. So all they need to sink is just a few fractions of an inch necessarily, and, and those plants can no longer survive. It turns into a different community. And in many cases, it, it sinks so low that no plants can survive, and it just turns into this kind of open water wasteland that really doesn't produce much good habitat. You know, it's not deep enough all the time for a fish community to be really supported by it. And most of the fish that we tend to see using those those open water areas are also invasive species, carp and, and things like that. So, but, it, you know, it's not solely the, the nutria's fault that we've seen such wetland loss in the Chesapeake Bay region because there are a number of threats to uh, this ecosystem, and that includes sea level rise, um, land subsidence through the withdrawal of our underground aquifers for human consumption, oh, okay. and irrigation, and all that sort of thing. Um, and so there's all these sort of multiple factors impacting the marshes, which can be fairly resilient until you put nutrient into the equation. They're sort of the catalyst that that little, uh, that, you know, your grandma's sweater that she knitted for you when you were a kid and you got a thread pulled on it and all of a sudden the whole thing unravels. The yeah. nutrient is the one pulling that thread. And that's all of the other things sort of compound when nutrient are introduced to the equation. So they did some really neat research back in the 1990s trying to figure out the role that nutria played and what they did was they went throughout the Blackwater system and they put in a bunch of fences, basically, um, 30 by 30 meter exclusion fences that they buried into the ground so that the nutria couldn't swim under it or dig under it. And then they made sure there were no nutria within them. And they just monitored the, the vegetation around them. And they very quickly could see a distinct difference. Uh, 
they put them in areas where there was compromised by nutria and outside the fences continued to degrade and convert to this muddy open water and inside the fence the plants came back so it was uh, a good indication that if we could eliminate nutria from the equation that the the marsh could possibly restore itself now real quick here do do they bank den or where do they sleep at night that's a great question um they don't typically bank den um in fact many of the areas that they live in out in the open marsh uh don't have banks so they just they, they live on the they surface don't build a lodge or a hut like a no, muskrat or they beaver. don't and that's uh, one of the reasons we think that they're limited in their northern distribution because they don't have that thermal refuge from cold weather so what we would so see they just lay out yeah, they'll build like a little nest, just a, a platform of vegetation. Like a, like a muskrat feed bed kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And um, I've seen those built almost on stilts. When we have real high water events, we had a hurricane in 2002, I think, Hurricane Isabel. It brought a six-foot storm surge over the whole marsh. And when the waters receded, we found nutria beds that were made out of Phragmites, the invasive reed that you've yeah. been seeing lately. Um four feet off the surface of the marsh, all folded over and made a nice little platform so they could get up out of the water. Really? But that doesn't provide thermal protection. So what we see in the wintertime with these critters is that they're very susceptible to cold weather. They'll get frostbite on their tails, and over over the course of several years, a, a big adult nutria might only have a stub six-inch tail or, or less even because um, it just gets frostbite. Females under uh, physiological stress from the cold weather will actually abort their females or their uh, fetuses. Okay. And so that's uh, another element of nutria, why they're such a difficult species to to deal with is because they reproduce extremely rapidly. They uh, Nutria come into heat uh, and are ready to breed within 24 to 48 hours of giving birth. And they become sexually mature at about six months of age. So once a nutria hits six months of age, she's virtually pregnant for the rest of her life. And in the wintertime, if so, they... So let, let me clarify that. Sure. When you first said that, I thought you meant um, that the young... But you're saying a female will have a litter, and then that female, within within a couple days, is ready to breed again. Absolutely, yep. And if, her and her offspring can breed when? How, how old? At, they at be? about six months of age. Okay. So you get uh, it's about a four month gestation period, three to four months, and so they can produce like three litters a year. You're producing generations yeah. in a year. Yeah. Oh yeah. And in these northern climates, where we do see these periods of stress on the animals, where the females will abort their litters if they're pregnant they'll come into the heat immediately after that. So it, it forces this sort of cyclic and seasonality to the to the breeding pattern in these northern climates where we tend to see big pulses of reproduction, uh, litters born in like May, October, and January, and then usually the January litter doesn't really survive because there's, these young are born at, at uh, a time of year where it just isn't conducive to survival. What so? What year was it? Remind me again. What year they they first may have gotten introduced here? From nineteen forty three, early nineteen forties. And then what year was it when the explosion? Like you know, when you, you're describing how they'll just kind of putter along, and all of a sudden their right. numbers get to a point where you can have this like all of a sudden this like exponential 
right. you know, dynamite It was growth. in the late 1960s when they really started to notice, you know, nutrient in abundance. And then through the 70s and 80s, that marsh loss really seemed to accelerate. To the point where you could, people were seeing it in their own lifetime, they were seeing the marsh loss. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I had employees on the project that were born and raised on the marshes of, of Blackwater. And they said when they were kids, uh, they could have walked in tennis shoes from the wildlife drive on the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge across to the property where they, they grew up. It's about a two or three mile distance probably and the only place they would have gotten wet was where the blackwater river coursed through that marsh there's a high marsh uh solid uh good good ground and uh that's a big lake now okay yeah what year was it then that or let me ask this too how okay what year was it when someone said like is there something we should be trying to do about this and how many nutria were there at that moment? Yeah, can you work in yeah. just like a general public perception into that answer too? Like what was the public thinking and about it back then? Well, you know, at, at first I think that it wasn't perceived as such a problem because there was a fur market for, for nutria. And people would go out in the wintertime and, and they would hunt and trap them and, you know, get some money for their, for their pelts. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But really from a wildlife perspective and from a local economy perspective, muskrat is the king here. And when you lose three square marsh, you lose muskrat. And I think people started to realize that, that at least from the trapping community, that muskrat are much more desirable than nutria are. And so there was support even from you know that element that, we needed to do something about it. The big thing was the loss of marshes at, at Blackwater and the surrounding uh, Fishing Bay Wildlife Management Area. So it was in the 1990s that the various natural resource agencies that have a role in, in managing and conserving uh, these important Chesapeake Bay resources got together and started thinking about you know what we could do to try to stem the loss and maybe even foster the recovery of the marsh. This, this whole project is not about killing nutrients. It's about restoring wetlands. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the purpose of it. So it took some time to get all the people on board and to get congressional support for, because this is a big initiative. You know, we're talking, uh, you know, a quarter million acres of wetlands that we eventually have, have uh, treated across this uh, this landscape so no small task um, they estimated population estimates uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 50,000 nutrient at Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge and they they had some fairly good numbers to make estimates off through their trapping programs because uh, Blackwater and Fishing Bay are both available to uh, for trappers to to bid on uh, they control the the amount of trapping I mean, the fur trappers can come in and bid on a lot, correct? Like like a, like a chunk of ground unit, within the yeah. refuge to just to work for their own trap line, right? Yeah. Um, and so they had harvest records, and at one point they were paying uh, not a bounty per se, uh, but trappers that that did uh, lease the trapping units could turn in nutria tails for a dollar fifty credit towards the total price of whatever they paid. So if a trapper paid you know fifteen hundred bucks for a trapping unit 
and they caught what a hundred nutrient, turn the tails, and they could get one hundred and fifty dollars per tail and cover the cost of their lease. They couldn't, they couldn't catch you know five hundred nutrient and get seven hundred. Yeah, extra money. But that anything, same but. guy would probably be that, that same guy would probably be stacking up muskrats in the hundreds. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. These wetlands support quite high densities of muskrats, and these are high quality muskrats around here. Yeah, they're, uh, the Chesapeake Bay region is is renowned for the quality of their muskrat pelts. Yeah, I heard a guy the other night. I mean, I remember like in the early eight, like the late seventies, early eighties, muskrats. You know, I mean, got up to like you know extra large muskrats. You got to imagine like the, the the economic difference between now and then, like what it meant. But like seven or eight dollar muskrats oh, yeah. in the late seventies, early eighties, adjusted for inflation, is like a valuable animal for something that like an enterprising trapper. I mean, there was guys who would quite handily put um, trap flesh and stretch upwards of a thousand or even more muskrats in a year. You oh, yeah. can make a living trapping back then, mm-hmm. trapping muskrats. Now you're hard pressed to make a living trapping muskrats. You're hard pressed to pay for your expenses trapping muskrats. But at the time, it was just like an incredible Absolutely. thing. I caught the tail end of that. You know, mm-hmm. I was coming into trap and just as the you know, I set my first muskrat trap in 1984, and guys are already talking about the good old days. Yeah, but it was still pretty good, just not as good. Right. You know? Well, you know, and the market continues to fluctuate. We, we've never seen prices like back then, but uh, you know, in the time that I've been here, muskrat pelts, extra larges have have gone up to close to eight dollars, and you know, five dollars with with some regularity, and they you know peak and valley over time. But there's also a, a market for the meats here as well so by yeah, the time that, yeah, that surprised me to hear yeah by the time you sell the pelt and then you might get three or four or five bucks for the meats as well uh you're actually looking at 10 or 12 dollars per muskrat and there are people here that that uh make a significant part of their living off of muskrat you know it's a seasonal work a lot of farmers will trap during the winter when they're not tending their fields and whatnot a lot of watermen will uh, trap during that part of the year. So it's an important part of the local economy. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, trapping is a anachronistic type thing. It's a dead art and it's we don't need it in this modern society. But there's still folks here that, that really rely on income for trapping. You know, Dorchester County is not a wealthy county. It's uh, the last time I looked, which was some years ago the the median income was about $22,000 a year so if someone's catching 3 4 $5,000 worth of muskrat in a year that's a significant chunk of their yep. annual income so it's important to people it's not just a you know a hobby or a pastime that people like to do it's it's really important and this is a point that i think is forgotten uh that those skills in the community that understanding of the natural world that we live in, I think no one understands better than a trapper. You know, having to know an animal well enough and its habitat well enough to be able to go out and catch it requires a certain amount of, of knowledge and know-how, understanding and respect for the environment. And without and, and those... be out there doing that 90 days in a row. Yeah, absolutely. Dedication. It's, uh, it's hard work. And having those skills... Uh, I think are incredibly important to conservation today. And, and you can see it beyond what we did here. You know, our, the nutrient eradication campaign that we mounted in conjunction with the Maryland DNR and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service 
was essentially a systematic hunting and trapping program that we so, used paid employees to to implement. So so the problem was identified and mm-hmm. funding was secured and someone floated the idea of let's try to go kill all 50,000 nutria. Every last one of yep. them dead. Yep. That was the goal. And what um, was the pers- if someone told me that if if you asked me if you asked me like before I found out about this, if you'd asked me like, do you think in a not in an island not in an island environment, but like in an open environment like this, do you think you could um, mechanically remove an established population mm-hmm. of a semi-aquatic rodent? I would tend to say no, you couldn't. But people did it successfully, accidentally with beavers. Exactly in the early 1900s, yeah, on horseback. So. Yeah, so that was but it still would be daunting. Absolutely. I would still be like, yeah, I don't know if you could really do it or not. And so wisely, the project began as a pilot study because we weren't sure if it was feasible or not. And certainly, there were a lot of people, probably most people, who thought it probably wasn't. But we were able to convince enough folks in the right places uh, that it was a worthy endeavor, and we got the funding to to do it. And it started with about a two year. Uh, research project uh, back in 2000 and at that time the project was being managed through the University of Maryland Eastern Shore where they had a cooperative fish and wildlife research unit it was part of the U.S. uh, Geological Survey's uh, research branch and it's so it started looking at things like trying to answer questions like if you is there a density dependent response of of nutria reproduction in response to intensive trapping pressure. So in other words, if you trap nutria, are they going to just make more nutria faster? And so that was one of the areas of research. Um, Which is also, a problem people find with trying to get rid of coyotes. Yeah, there are examples of species that do respond uh, by increasing their reproductive rates, whether it's on a per individual basis by an increase in litter size or if it's through uh, an increasing proportion of the population uh, breeding because you're disrupting the social uh, dynamics of that species. Um, And some do it by increasing dispersal too, right? When they get that pressure. Yeah, well, that's that sort of ties into the disrupting their social thing, oh, okay. you know, especially with coyotes. You know, if you have a saturated population of coyotes, they tend to suppress breeding in the younger animals and they form more family groups. And if you get a lot of mortality there, then the family unit breaks up and the young disperse and then you've got freedom to breed. So, um, but with Nutria, uh, the other thing they were looking at was trying to determine if there are any sort of parasite loads, that sort of thing, sort of some basic ecological research on how the species exists in the Chesapeake region, but also trying to estimate populations. And they found it challenging uh, to catch enough animals to test some of their hypotheses with these things because uh, any market capture study requires large sample sizes to come up with a reliable estimate of what that population is. And it got to a point where I think the the folks that were providing the funding wanted to see 
us move into the eradication phase. You know, let's see if we can get this done. Get so, out of the starting and get to the killing. Right, exactly. Yeah. So in 2002, Wildlife Services was asked to, to get involved as the implementing agency to, to sort of carry out this plan. And it was very much an adaptive management type plan. And we started at Blackwater. That's where, you know, the problem originated. And uh, we actually had three main study areas that were used during the research phase that we started out on. And one was at Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. The other was on Fishing Bay Wildlife Management Area. And the third was on a private uh, conservation property that was uh, adjacent to the Fishing Bay and, and Blackwater complexes. So that uh, that first summer that we got engaged, you know, we worked on trying to trap out the study areas that they had started doing all this research on. And, and to, those weren't like enclosed areas, though. No, no, not at and all. And they weren't isolated. No. They were tied into the other populations. Correct, correct. So they were, as I remember, they were about six, seven, eight, nine hundred acres, uh, sort of plots within the Blackwater Fishing Bay and Tudor Farm system. And that's where they had done the bulk of the mark and recapture studies and, and that sort of thing. So we tried to go in and, and work out our trapping techniques to sort of clear out those areas and try to give some closure to the mark recapture stuff so that we could get all those tagged animals and, and account for them. It, would this be a good time to explain how the, like, I have no idea when you just say you're trapping nutria, like, what did that look like? Yeah, sure. So we use some pretty conventional fur trapping techniques. Uh, the core of our uh, trapping toolbox was the 220 counter bear, which is an instant kill uh, body gripping trap. Uh, it's commonly per, per used. near instant. <laughs> pretty near, yes. Um, <laughs> Submerged, it's fast. Yes, it yeah. is. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, we bought thousands of those things. To, oh, is that right? Yeah, we had... Uh, 15 full-time wildlife specialists. Do you guys remember if you run like Victor's or Northwoods or, uh, or just whoever? Yeah, I think uh, Sleepy Creek, actually. I think we, we had quite a few traps from really? them. Yeah, um, yeah. body grip and traps come in like series sizes. So like there's like the 100 series sizes, right. which are mink and muskrat. 200 series sizes are generally used for raccoon, otter, nutria, um, exactly. Fishers, guys will use one tens on dry land, one tens for Martin. Did I say mink? I think I did. Then the three hundred series are usually just beaver. Yeah, but guys use three thirties also for wolverines. Mm -hmm. And some guys liked uh, some guys like three thirties for otters because otters are harder to fence into a two twenty, but they don't work right. as good because sometimes the otter can pop out of one of the jaws. Right. You know, so people right. like two twenties on those. Yep. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance, and man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. 
Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. Onyx Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. So Did they make any bigger? Is that the biggest? Never heard of anything bigger than a 330 Conibear, a 300 series Conibear. They actually do make a couple, uh, what do they call them, 660s or something like oh, that? And it's like two 330s welded together. So it's still got the 10-inch jog spread from top to bottom, but they're twice as wide. Yeah, that's good to throw in the measurements because the 220, 220s are eight, right? Uh, seven inches, I believe. Seven-inch yeah. jog spread, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, when you set this thing, this looks like a little wire box right right and you, but it's got springs on the 330 you can break your arm man you put your arm in yeah, it. yeah it's they're not pleasant to have your appendage cut in <laughs> so you guys went out and bought a mountain of 220s we bought a mountain of 220s and quite a few foothold traps as well and what um, what uh what were you doing up with those what size traps uh a lot of one and a half coil spring traps, but uh, we also use some bigger. So Nutria have a much bigger hind foot than they do front foot, yeah. very much like a beaver. And so the the uh, one and a half coil spring trap, which has about a four and a half inch jaw spread, I think uh, Nutria's foot can span the entire trap. So unless you catch them by the front foot, you run the risk that 
that they might just spring a trap and not get caught. So we did have some larger traps that we used, uh, number twos and threes, I think, that we sometimes set. If you were set for the hind leg? Yeah. Yeah. So just, just for context for people, like a one and a half double coil spring is a foothold trap. And that's the size generally used. That's like the go-to trap for raccoon, fox. Yeah. yeah. Right. That, that size critter. Yep. So, and it's important to have uh, different tools in your trapping toolbox because the, sometimes animals become trap shy. You know, if they, they see a certain uh, type of trap and they're, you know, some animals are less tolerant of new novelties in their environment and they'll sort of steer clear of them. So foothold trap is easier to camouflage and sort of disguise. Um, so we tended to catch the bulk of the animals that we captured in the 220 counter bear. But when we had animals that were clearly, you know, avoiding the, the uh, body gripping traps, we would set the foothold traps. And were you setting those 220s in the channels? Yeah, so we'd find those swim channels and, and paths through the marsh. And just neck them down and stick didn't even, They were the perfect width. Oh, so, so they, they built a 220-size channel? Yep, uh, perfect perfect width for the, the 220. It wasn't wasn't quite rocket science to catch them. But, uh, and would you guys use those uh, those basic harness rigs to hold the 220 so you can just stab it into the ground? No, we actually uh, used bamboo poles mostly. Oh. Uh, so we wired the trap to a bamboo pole and then... Uh, stuck it through the spring in the corner of the trap to provide some stabilization and also sort of a visual sort of guide to you know, send the animal through And the you're trap. hauling all this gear around, what, in a canoe? A lot of it, well, yeah, uh, mostly John boats, actually. Um, there are the main waterways you can navigate through the marsh, but a lot of it was over the shoulder, uh, just carrying stuff through the equipment through the marsh. The bamboo poles were kind of handy because you could you could uh, spring the trap on the end of the bamboo pole and then gather you know ten or a dozen poles up with traps on the end, throw them over your shoulder, and carry them across the marsh. So, and it's stuff like that. Kind of circle it back to where I was going with the importance of maintaining these trapping skills in the community. We were very reliant on local knowledge and local trappers on this project to understand how to work in this marsh effectively and the techniques that 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 work best uh because while trapping isn't rocket science it's got a steep learning curve for a beginner and uh you know it can take people a long time to sort of figure things out uh and an experienced trapper can be very effective at selecting the species that they're trying to target and avoiding those other species that not. But a novice trapper often is is uh, not as selective. So having that expertise in the community, and this translates to much much beyond, uh, you know, nutrient eradication. Uh, fur trappers were incredibly important to the restoration of a lot of uh, endangered species in the United States, uh, wolves being probably one of the most uh, prime examples of that. You know, the, the last remaining Mexican wolves were caught by a trapper named Roy McBride and pulled into to captivity for a selective breeding program to build those populations up and restore them to the wild. The, the Yellowstone wolf recovery effort was uh, many of those wolves were captured and, and trapped set by trappers. So, I remember some years ago, some American fur trappers going down to help some governments in South America catch jaguars. 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they're, uh, you know, a, a good trapper is a very valuable person to the wildlife conservation community. Um, so, Were you a trapper before you got involved with wildlife yeah, services? Yeah, he was trading muskrats for haircuts. Yep. Okay, yeah. yeah we caught, <laughs> I, caught, I caught that. So was I wasn't there. Uh, I, certainly not a uh, trapper in the sense that the folks here that, you know, make a living off it, but how I got started in it. And actually I had, I grew up with somewhat of a negative opinion of trapping because my, my grandfather was an avid bird hunter and always had bird dogs. Oh yeah. Those guys. And he'd, <laughs> yeah, he'd had a couple dogs get caught in foothold. They're traps right there and, with the humane society. Yeah. Tra- trapping, man. <laughs> so yeah, he, he had sort of instilled in me this, uh, lack of appreciation, shall I say for, for trapping in general. But, you know, I went to school for wildlife management and I came out of that uh, and went into graduate school for uh, wildlife ecology and I was really dying to study uh, carnivores and I managed to land a position, a graduate research position at the State University of New York College of Environmental Science and Forestry doing coyote research. And, you know, for the first time I had to figure out how to catch a an animal with this sort of traditional fur harvesting tools. I'd done, you know, trapping with cage traps for pine marten and uh, other critters like that, but I'd never... For research. Set, for research, yeah. yeah. But I'd never set, you know, foothold traps. And so I had to learn how to do it to catch study animals for my project. And when you're making, you know, a stipend of 800 bucks a month, uh, it doesn't quite make ends meet. And... I'm learning to trap, and I'm also driving through all of this prime muskrat country, and I'm seeing farmers with problems with beavers and all that sort of stuff. And so I just started learning. And I was very fortunate to have a, a renowned fur buyer and trapper in the community that I was living in in, in upstate New York. Who was that? Uh, Paul Grimshaw. Yeah, Grimshaw. They make lures yep. too. Yep, yeah. yeah. And uh, he didn't exactly take me under his wing. He's kind of a ornery old guy uh but once you sort of connected with him he'd start sharing knowledge and so i learned a tremendous amount from him i'd just go and watch he and his wife skin and and stretch muskrat pelts and uh just learned you know the kind of tricks of the trade for catching some of these other fur bears and and i was able to supplement my income you know not tremendous I wasn't out there buying cars or anything with it, but when you make it hundred bucks a month, an extra month's salary in in the course of a year, it really helped yeah. out quite a bit. So I was telling you honestly the other day about I used to sell. I didn't uh, flesh and stretch my own raccoons because mm-hmm. like no one likes doing that, you know. And I would sell them to a fur buyer who would who would uh, guy named Abe Sal Salicina. Um, he was a tomato enthusiast who grew tomatoes and bought fur and he would go into his to sell him raccoons and he'd be in there and he'd heat his he'd heat his barn with raccoon fat no kidding yeah he'd open that door and take a gob of that raccoon fat throw yeah. it in there like black smoke coming out of that <laughs> well you know it was it was neat to be in such proximity to to paul grimshaw because you know he was an expert in putting up furs and whatnot so mm-hmm. you know i'd put up my own fur from when I was doing that and I enjoyed that part of it. It's kind of like butchering your own meat, you know, you, you kind of taking that process from start to finish and, you know, you get more money for 
for when it's when it's put up properly. You get less when it's put up poorly, but um, I think they'd rather buy green fur than than poorly put up fur. But yeah, so but, that's uh, like that. Like lingo is uh, green fur would be skinned, right? But not flesh and stretched. If you sold a muskrat, like guys would also sell muskrats in the round, right? Which would mean just whole freaking carcass. muskrat yeah, yeah just pull up at the end run your line and drive up and sell the guy muskrats in the round you might be selling them for half what you'd get if you sold them right stretched exactly so that was a real uh learning experience for me and and the thing i liked about it is that it it really makes you step back and take time to learn about animals you normally wouldn't even think about you know who thinks about muskrats Unless you're trying to catch them, mm-hmm. and then so it just I learned a whole lot about the ecology of the region and and the behavior of the animals and the importance of different habitat types and what lives there through this process of learning how to trap. And uh, so when you caught, but when you caught wind of the, the you you had to go apply for the Nutria job, or was it did yeah. it just like fall into your lap? No, I had to apply for it. The, so. You know, when I was working in the Virginia Wildlife Services program, uh, every state has Wildlife Services has a program in every state, just about. And so I was working through the Virginia Division of Wildlife Services, and we would have these annual conferences where all the different states surrounding would get together and intermingle. And for a couple of years there, I was hearing them talk about this nutria eradication study that they were undertaking in Maryland and. At the time, Maryland Wildlife Services wasn't getting involved. Uh, We had a state director at the time that was close to retirement and I think wasn't really all that keen to take on this sort of massive project. Um, But he retired and a a new guy came in and uh, jumped on the opportunity to to work with the Fish and Wildlife Service and uh, put this vacancy announcement out there and Geez, it sounded interesting to me. I had no idea what a nutria was. I had to look it up. And I put my name in the hat, and I don't know how I got picked, but I did. Well, you had a bunch of trapping experience. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, but I feel very fortunate to have been selected for that position because it's the kind of thing that that uh, doesn't happen too often in your career where you, you get to work on a project that just has sort of profound impacts on conservation and the ecology and, and results that you can see on the ground and so the position was and it was everything you liked man yeah i was able to take all of the skills that i developed through my personal passions hunting and trapping and that sort of thing and sort of devote them to solving a conservation problem and it, it really was rewarding to be able to do that and also you know i have to give uh, full credit to the guys that, and gals that really got this job done because I was not the trapper out there. I did trap some, but uh, I was a project manager. So mm-hmm. I was supervising the team. Uh, Big coming picture. up, Yeah. With, uh, developing the strategies to, you know, how to work and devote our resources across the landscape and, you know, when is it time to move from this area to that area, that sort of thing making sure the guys had all the equipment that they needed, the boats, the motors, the waders, the traps, all that stuff. Um, so that was sort of my role. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to supervise was appealing to me. I didn't uh, think so when I first got into wildlife that I'd really want to be managing people. But 
you know, realizing how much more you can accomplish by harnessing the, the energy of others uh, was a neat opportunity. So I'm getting backed up on questions. I got a couple quickies. Sure. Out of context, out of order. The, 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 were you hiring trapper trappers or were you hiring, or, or did that not, that's not how it worked? Like you didn't come in and hire existing fur trappers so, to do the physical trapping. So the research phase of the project had hired some local trappers as part of the team. And when we came... To develop, to develop methodologies or whatever. Yeah, well, to implement the research study that they designed. Okay. So they, that was primarily using uh, cage traps um, and some foothold traps. Uh, but they did reach out to the local community and, and got a handful of folks that were uh, you know, born and raised on the Chesapeake Bay knew how to trap, uh, how to handle animals and all that stuff. And so we inherited when the wildlife services program took over, they wanted to provide a home for those, you know, employment for those folks that had dedicated themselves to the research phase of the project. And so we were able to hire them when we came on board. Not all of them chose to come with us. So I had some vacancies to fill and, you know, we put out vacancy announcements and uh, we tried to recruit locally, and we also tried to recruit uh, young wildlife professionals that were just getting out of college and starting their careers. And I always strove to have a sort of a balance of the two, because those uh, those greenhorns don't know what they're doing, and they need someone to kind of show them the ropes and whatnot. But they bring a lot of energy and passion to their their work as well. Um, yeah, and it helps them in their. Career path yeah, it's a toward, stepping stone yeah, for them. Impactful work, yeah. And then our our sort of uh, I always called them our veteran employees. They weren't military veterans necessarily, but but the folks that had been with the project from the beginning, and our folks that were that were taught on the Chesapeake. They went to the school of the Chesapeake, you know, to learn their trade. And so those folks would provide kind of the stability and the long term institutional knowledge that we needed to keep the project. Uh, going because this is a, a long-term project and so okay so the second quickie and then i'm gonna get into the longer question um when, what, what are you guys doing with all the nutrients that you trap you probably can't utilize yeah. them right because it's part no. of a government project correct so and there was no market for them or anything like that there's no use for the meats or anything so it, at first we were instructed to remove all of the carcasses from the field and we were going to compost them or bury them or, or do something. <coughs> Pardon me. But uh, we quickly found, in, at the time that that sort of rule was put in place, we had expected that there would be tens of thousands of nutrients that we were going to be catching. And when reality set in, we started doing the trapping. It had been come, become clear that the population had begun to decline, and we weren't catching nearly the numbers that we expected. That began we to decline because of the trapping. No, not necessarily. I think uh, the the population on its own had started sort of dwindling, and part of the reason is probably that they they had eaten themselves out of house and home in many of these areas. So yeah. there's habitat that was no longer there. They were estimated to reach densities of. Gosh, I should have uh, boned up on some of my my memory here. Um, eight to nine, six to nine per square acre or per acre. Okay. Uh, so at those densities, uh, 
which are tremendous densities, you know, you could have seen 35 to 50,000 nutrient blackwater, but wipe 5,000 acres of habitat off the map and you got significantly gotcha. fewer. So we were bringing the carcasses back, but there weren't that many of them. And the big concern for removing them from the marsh was the potential for avian, influ- um, avian botulism with all these rotting carcasses out there potentially. Being fed on by birds. Yeah, yeah. just uh, this mass of carrion that, that would uh, potentially create problems for other wildlife. Yep. But it was very time-consuming to remove the animals from the field. You know, at, at 15 pounds a piece, you get four or five of them. You've got 60 pounds of carcass yep. that you're hauling around. So it was impeding our progress, and it didn't seem like there were numbers that would contribute to the kind of concerns that we initially had going into it. So we opted at that point to leave the carcasses out in the field, and very quickly the uh, scavengers would would gotcha. convert them back to you know ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Yeah. And so it didn't turn out to be so much of an issue to have to remove them from the field, and that freed us up to... You know, better to spend our time moving traps and carrying more traps out than carrying deal with all those cars. Yeah, exactly. So the longer question. No, I got another quickie. Uh, what was the public perception of the idea that we're gonna kill all the nutrients, just get rid of them wholesale? Great. Were people like good question. idea, or were people like that's a horrible idea? Not whether you can, right. not whether it's plausible, but whether it's like advisable. Right. So anytime you implement some sort of lethal management of, of wildlife populations, there's often a uh, outcry of public sentiment that opposes that. But because of the ecological impact that these critters had, and it was obvious to anyone familiar with this ecosystem, uh, the ecological justification was so compelling that there was really very little backlash add to that that it, you know it's basically a 20 pound rat uh doesn't generate a whole lot of sympathy uh, but i wasn't people. more yeah that, that that that's good information and i like that you said it but i meant uh i wasn't so much interested in those guys i was interested in the people who actually liked the nutrient oh. but, but so, I mean, yeah, no do both versions i hadn't even yeah, anticipated sure. you're, you're talking about like the the animal welfare right because there was a very, I'm talking about the guys who were out there, perhaps hunting, trapping, eating, selling. So again, back to muskrat is the king. Um, Nutria had a pretty detrimental impact on muskrat populations, okay. both so through elimination who's... of habitat and competition, uh, displacement competition. So Nutria uh, would, in the winter months in particular dig into muskrat houses to try to seek refuge from uh, cold weather or sit on top of them and bask in the sun and whatnot. And they would basically destroy the muskrat house for okay. the muskrats. So, you know, we had a less valuable critter having uh, a negative impact on a really important gotcha. critter. And so there, so was, there was really no like, opposition. So there was really no one who had any kind of reasonable widespread no. 
sentiment we, that you should. We had, you know, one land landowner that I worked with, and that's something I should mention too, is that this project would have been inconceivable without the support of private landowners, because more than half of the nutria that we eventually removed came from private land. So, having their support was critical. Uh, as a federal uh, agency, uh, a non-regulatory wildlife services can't just go on private property and, and conduct our work. We have to have their permission and blessing, and they have to approve all the methods that we use. So I had one farmer that we encountered who refused us access to his property because uh, according to what he said, was he liked to eat nutria and liked to have them, a little refrigerator out in the back 40 where he could go and... Yeah pluck some nutria for dinner on occasion. Um, fortunately, it wasn't a big area, and we were able to sort of trap around it and kind of pull the animals that were on his property off, so it didn't impede our, our progress in the long term. But what it mostly come down to, I think, is there's a fairly significant anti-government sentiment in the community, just about anywhere you go, but it's particularly uh, noticeable here in Dorchester County. You know, there's a lot of government regulations with you know wetlands and and harvest of animals, fish, uh, commercial fisheries, and crabs, and all that sort of thing. So there's just this sort of general resentment to government intrusion and in people's oh, yeah. livelihoods. People want to be able to wreak havoc and exactly. not have any repercussions, <laughs> right? <laughs> so there wasn't that opposition. Um, and then from the animal welfare side, there also wasn't opposition, which is interesting because at the same time that we were undertaking this uh, eradication campaign, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources was trying to deal with a rapidly expanding mute swan population uh, that had reached another non-native species. Another non-native species that does an uh, aquatic ecosystem very much what nutria do to these uh, wetland ecosystems so they feed on the the mute swans feed on the subaquatic uh submerged aquatic vegetation that's really critical habitat for all sorts of fish crabs and you know it's, it provides a nursery for all these juvenile species and yes, they'll so go folks in can imagine we're talking about imagine the most beautiful exactly picturesque swan yep. that you would just want to protect and cuddle exactly like take pictures so. of and cuddle with Yep, and they had Being reached a populations. Ba- the bastard of the marsh, man. <laughs> <laughs> they had reached populations of close to forty five hundred animals. Uh, and explain like their explain their impact on ducks. So they're very aggressive birds, and they will uh, chase native waterfowl and shorebirds and displace them off of uh, nesting grounds and feeding grounds and stuff. So they they're pretty. Uh, yeah, they don't play nice, man. No, they don't play nice. So he's nice. like, you know, I'm going to nest here, right. and no one's going to nest within 100 yards of my right. nest. Yep, exactly. And so in response to that initiative that the Department of Natural Resources was taking on, uh, there were animal welfare groups erecting uh, billboards along Route 50, save our swans and messages to the governor yeah, and screw, so on. Screw the ducks, <laughs> save the swans, man. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, to their credit, the DNR persisted, and they have whittled that population down, last I heard, to probably less than 50. Okay. Wow. So, that, uh, you know, we got two, two big ecological problems that have been, you know, dealt with in this region over the past 10, 15 and years. And a lot of that anti-sentiment went into swans and not into rodents. Yeah, it was uh, perhaps a, a bit of a distraction, but, you know, I, I think that there's a, uh, an element... A lot of these groups are reliant on donations for 
their solvency. Yeah. And people are much more willing to open their wallet for a big, beautiful white bird than a brown 20-pound rat. But isn't it weird because you're kind of defending – I mean, it's not weird at all because people are people. And, and mm-hmm. you look at things and you – you know, we tend to like and admire animals that strike us as beautiful. Sure. But if you're, if you're based on the idea that you're just defending sentient life, mm-hmm. like you don't want to see – damage come to sentient life it shouldn't matter if it's a swan or a giant rodent it's like it's a sentient being yeah a man is a pig is a dog is a boy but people uh really tend to um get very interested in in defending things that are that are you know instagram worthy creatures Mm -hmm. more so than the ugly ones well and the cynic in me says it's you know it's driven more by money than it is by <laughs> by commitment to the cause because so that's say. where you get funding right yeah who's gonna sure. who's gonna pull out their wallet to save nutria yeah um so we were fortunate not to have to battle that sort of of uh opposition to the the program and much to our surprise when we started reaching out to private landowners when we kind of expected given the government sentiments anti-government sentiments that we would have a hard time People were opening their doors to us. Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many kitchens I sat in with my laptop computer and a little slideshow, talking to farmers and other landowners about what we were attempting to do and why it was important for their assistance and, and whatnot. And hundreds, hundreds of landowners gave us access to tens of thousands of private pro- acres of private property so that we could be successful in this. And a lot of them did it sort of begrudgingly. You know, they didn't think we'd be successful. Um, they didn't think you'd catch them all. No, hell no. You'll never get the last one. I don't even know why you guys are wasting all this government money on there. But uh, as one farmer I remember distinctly said, but I'm not going to be the stick in the mud <laughs> to keep you guys from, from trying. So, you know, and we had a couple key landowners that came on board early that sort of helped us set the stage and you know well if if so and so let you on his property i guess i'll let you on mine yeah and i think one of the most uh the biggest compliments i ever got working on this project over the 12 years that i was on it was from that farmer that said he didn't want to be the stick in the mud to stand in the way of of trying to do this but he had told me that there's no way in hell we were ever going to get the last ones or probably even make a dent in the population. And a couple years after we had sort of swept through his area, um, I ran into him at a gas station. He came up to me and said, you know, I never thought I'd say this, but I've got I've to eat some crow here. He said, I never thought you guys could have done what you did eliminating those nutria. So I've been out, and he was a bird hunter, and he would take his dogs, and he used to take his labs out and, and uh, hunt nutria in the marshes behind his house. And he said, I, I haven't seen a nutria in two years, and I don't know where they all went, but how you guys did it, but you yeah. know, it's, it's an amazing thing that you've accomplished here. So and it, you know, it wasn't like we just went out and trapped one time and removed it. It was a constant effort of going back and sweeping through and looking and making sure that we didn't leave anything behind. Well, well back, up to how, back up to the first, when you first isolated a test area, and went for it how long like like roughly how big was the test area and how long did it take 
to wipe out the test area? And then how did you monitor it to see that you'd gotten them all? So the test area began with these original 600-acre parcels uh, or study sites, three of each. I think there were a total of, I can't even remember now. Uh, There were three study sites on each uh, property. And so we went in and we we just intensively trapped them off. We created a grid across the entire uh, study site. And then we deployed our trappers in sort of rows and columns, like a checkerboard type thing. And then we trapped across and saturated the whole area with traps. But these were basically islands in a sea of occupied habitat. So we very quickly could tell that that it's just immigration. Uh, We were creating a big population sink but that if we were really going to do this and test the feasibility of eradication on a landscape scale, we couldn't do it on these little 600-acre plots. So we finished those out just to provide closure to that research project, and then we sort of reimagined the whole landscape, and starting at the western edge of Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge, we created a huge grid over that entire landscape, 40 acres, uh, about 400 meters or yards per side was the size of these trapping units. And we would stack our trappers up in in these rows and they would work east to west or west to east across the marsh, sequentially trapping each uh, trapping unit, each grid square. So we basically had a swath of intensive trapping activity that kind of moved across the landscape. We call it rolling thunder because it sounded cool. <laughs> right? So how many, uh, how many traps was rolling thunder running per night, and how many, how many nutri were you stacking up per day? So we, had, we sat pretty heavily at the beginning. Um, there were a lot of nutri to catch. We wanted to remove them as quickly as possible. And so we, uh, we would have hundreds. Each employee could have a couple hundred traps out at any given time. So with 15 employees working on it, you know, we, we had a couple thousand traps out at any, any given point yeah, in time. And so what we would do is we'd set the first row or column of, of trapping grids up. And then once that was saturated and things started to the catch, you know, you, you'll see a really, uh, you'll catch a lot of animals at first and then it'll start to dwindle off and, and tail off. Yep. So... When we started to see that dwindling in the first row, we'd start taking some of those traps and rolling them into the second row and, and getting that one set up. So we just kind of leapfrogged ourselves along. And it, it worked quite well. And what we did looking at the numbers is that, <coughs> and this was one of the things that we tried to do at the very beginning of the research phase was this mark recapture population estimate. Uh, we found it was actually much more accurate to just go out and remove all the animals in one fell swoop and count them all. Um, and what it turns out is that we could trap out a particular grid in about three weeks' time. Okay. And, you know, so we would catch, looking at the numbers over time, we'd catch about 75% of all the animals that occupied that plot in the first week of trapping. By the end of the second week, we'd tra- captured 85 to 90%. By the end of the third week, we've trapped about 95%. And then we would continue to catch onesies and twosies for that remaining 5% over the, it might take an additional four weeks to, to get all those. So if you rolled into a new area that was real hot and you did a 
main set and you got a few hundred traps in the water, what might the first catch be? Like what percent trap of, of traps would be full? Well, it depended on the trapper. There's a lot of variability there. Um, you know, some of the more experienced trappers would set fewer and more targeted and, and others would set more broadly and try to catch them all at once. And I, honestly, I can't tell you. I, re- I remember anybody that had a double-digit day was, was feeling pretty good about okay, their efforts. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's a, the thing that I think of from when I used to trap muskrats is that when you went into a, an area, you couldn't, if, if you were being like forward thinking, you wouldn't run more than two or th- you'd never run more than two or three nights. Because if, if sure. you went into a marsh, and, and I used to trap a lot of isolated potholes, mm-hmm. okay? So if you went into a marsh and, and set up, and it's like I got a good number of muskrats, the first night you might, so the first night's catch. So you sat during the day, let them sit overnight, check them the next day. That night you might run 60 to 75% mm-hmm. full traps. I mean, if you knew what you were doing, right? Yep. The next night, you're going to go back, and that's going to drop down to 25%. If you, if you were like a smart guy thinking about next year's season, you would pull at that point. Yep, absolutely. I could imagine, and I know you never did this because it just wasn't, it wasn't practical and there was no motivation to do it, but I could imagine just now here, listening to you, just imagine like, yeah, if you stayed in that marsh for two weeks, three weeks, and kept running all those mm-hmm. sets, you could absolutely. Yeah. But but and there you're talking out. about isolated spots. It's hard. I mean, they obviously right. got there in the first place, but it's a you know it's not it's not a matter of them just swimming over to your area. They have to do it across land spring. You know they'll right. migrate in the spring. But yeah, man, thinking about it now, I could totally picture you could just like, but just for three weeks, mm-hmm. nothing, nothing, nothing. Oh, here's another one. Nothing, nothing. Exactly. Here's another one. You'd eventually just probably get them. And so that is the most critical component. Uh, you know, there are a number of factors that you have to meet, criteria you have to meet for eradication of any species to be feasible. So, you know, in an eradication campaign like this, a trapping-based eradication campaign, there's sort of like all the other kind of management things you hear about that 80% of your energy is spent on 20% of this or whatnot. And what what we found out is that that uh, like 80 or 90% of our energy was spent capturing the last few animals in, in a population they'd get trap shy on you they get trap shy and it's just uh you know it gets down to fewer animals leave less signs so where exactly are they um and then it's a lot of activity on the marsh so their their behavioral change they'll change the way they use the marsh and they'll move in different times of the year they're you know in the summertime they can go anywhere they want because there's an abundance of food everywhere uh so you know, you'd find a little pocket and you'd set traps and then you'd not catch anything and find that they'd moved 200 yards and so you got to go find them. And, and are you guys toting around 22s as well and just shooting them when you see them? Yeah, uh, in the winter months in particular, we would uh, do systematic hunting. So when the, the marsh froze I like, up... I like the sounds of that. Yeah. I don't even know what that means. But. When, the, uh, when the marsh would freeze in the wintertime, if we were so lucky to get that and a little dusting of snow, uh, we could catch and we could shoot a lot of nutrient in a short amount of time just getting out on that marsh and, and hunting them, you know. So that whole concept of all of this energy being consumed using, you know, catching the last few animals uh, really forced us to think about uh, 
kind of different strategies to find those remaining animals. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier, you asked if there was any opposition, and there actually was a little bit. Um, there were some folks that thought that we should just offer a bounty and that the local trappers would take care of the problem if you offer a bounty. Yeah, but they're only going to—they're not going to chase after the last twenty percent. Exactly, and so that was why we elected to. We we're essentially tra- paying people to check empty traps. You know, the yeah. stuff they caught at the beginning. Well, that's that's the easy part. The hard part is catching the last few, and that's where we need to to keep that effort going. And so. The uh, the trick became how to find more efficiently those last remaining animals, and we tried a number of different things to do that. One of those was utilizing nutria themselves to find other nutria. So I had gone to some conferences and, and met with some folks that work internationally on invasive species eradication campaigns and whatnot. And in the Galapagos, they'd used uh, Judas goats. So they had these goats that they captured and put radio collars on them or GPS collars, and they let them go. They're a social and gregarious creature, so they seek out other goats, and they would go up in a helicopter and find these Judas goats that they put out there and then uh, take out all of the other animals. that all the, new, all the new friends that he'd made. Exactly. Yeah. And so knowing that, Nutria were social uh, and sought out other nutria. I thought, oh, I wonder if this could work for us. So we actually now, hold on. Pardon my ignorance, but where does the Judas um, what that reference come from? Some kind it's of Bible? Did you grow up like a, some kind of pagan household? <laughs> you guessed it. That's right. You did grow up some kind of pagan household. So Judas betrayed Christ. Yeah. In the in the in the the Last Supper painting, he's the only one that won't look at. It. He's the only one not looking at Christ. All right, yeah, betrayed him to the Romans. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater applying for tags each year in the west can be daunting yeah i apply for everything everywhere it's daunting you have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply well this is a thing of the past now onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters this tool helps organize the data that matters makes comparing hunt options easy and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members 
a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. I, for one, use it on all of my outboard engines up in Alaska every year. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm glad he's here as the historian to answer that question. I know it was biblical, but I don't like to go too deep into that biblical stuff. So thank mm-hmm. you. Well, there you have it. Providing that insight. But uh, but yeah, so we... Can I hear a fellow by the name of Moses? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I heard of him. <laughs> I just didn't know how deep we had to dive here. <laughs> so we we actually got uh, a special grant to look at uh, whether or not this concept would be feasible because we didn't want to sort of detract from the ongoing efforts to trap and remove uh, by diverting funds. So we got some additional grant funding to support this effort from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. And uh, we captured a bunch of nutria. We had them surgically sterilized because we didn't want to be releasing animals that could then, Mm -hmm. you know, escape us and begin breeding out there. As quickly as they breed, we knew that could be a problem as as well as a perception issue. You know, here we are spending millions of dollars to try (laughs) to... Put more back out. Yeah. So so they were all surgically sterilized. The males were... uh, vasectomized and the females had a tubal ligation yeah i had i had the former yeah um and then we put radio collars and in some instances they also had a gps collar on them that stored the data that it collected on board so at the time the technology was still pretty limiting that that uh we couldn't uh you know these devices take a lot of power and power means big batteries and putting a big package on a smaller animal was especially one that's got the body confirmation of a nutria it's challenging so we had these little devices custom made by a company in new zealand that that uh made them rechargeable and they would collect data for about a month and then it would store it all on board and we'd go back out and catch those animals and retrieve that gps 
unit and download it. And we could see everywhere that that nutrient had been. Every 90 minutes, it would collect a location. We could see where it had been over the past month. And he's an unfamiliar train when you turn him loose. Correct. Yeah. We, so the, the intent here was to determine if we left nutria behind in areas we already trapped. So yeah. we would release them in the areas that we thought were devoid of nutria. Well, lo and behold, some of these animals started uh, moving pretty widely across the landscape. They also, the collar also had a, a standard radio transmitter, so we could actually go out and track it on a day-to-day basis, so we would at least know the general vicinity they were in. And uh, we noticed, you know, after some wide movements across the landscape. Like miles? Miles, yeah, okay. in some cases. Uh, once they sort of sort of conglomerated into a, a smaller area, I thought, well, I wonder if there could be other nutria there. You know, it's spending a lot of time in this one area. So we'd go out and we'd set our cage traps to try to catch these animals back. And lo and behold, we caught a few animals that were not tagged. I was like, huh, this could work. In areas you thought you had trapped out. Right, yeah. right. So we knew there was a likelihood there were probably some animals, but you know, we'd had done the initial knockdown uh, and we'd gone back through and, and sort of mopped up. Those are kind of terminologies we used to describe the different phases of the eradication campaign. Yep. And so it wasn't a complete surprise to us, but it sure was handy to, to know where they were um, from these critters. But the problem that we had tracking them on a daily basis with the radio collars is that because they moved so far and because it's a thick vegetation environment and they're often in the water so the the signal from that device doesn't travel that far you had to be pretty close to even detect the signal so in cases where they might have moved two or three miles overnight we would spend all day you know trying to find them again trying to find them I got you. and so it turned out that while the technique worked to expose the existence of other nutria in the environment, from an operational standpoint, it wasn't really practical. I mean, the, the human resources that it took to just keep up with these animals. So what would have really been valuable was to have had a, a GPS collar that could, through either cell phone technology or satellite technology, relay that information to us remotely. And then, so that exists for... Uh, a lot of different species that it can carry that additional battery that, that power. That much extra equipment. Um, I want to ask you a question that's not related to, to Nutria, but is related to tracking devices. So let's say, let's just say, that uh, you know that in your state there is a collaring program going on with elk. And you know there are some elk wearing collars. Um, what prevents a person who just likes to tinker with kind of stuff, what presents, prevents a person from finding, uh, from building up his own kit to go track that same, to go track those same animals, just to find out where her elk herds are so he can go hunt them? So a couple things make it difficult. It's certainly not impossible, and that's you know been an issue in places, I'm sure, Um but the FCC designates certain bandwidths for government research and, you know, you can get these kinds of devices for hunting dogs and that sort of thing. So they, they sort of segregate the, the use categories of the different bandwidths, so the, the megahertz or frequencies that, okay. that uh, these things emit on. And so the, the systems that are uh, used for wildlife tracking are not generally available to the public, um, 
and they're it's fairly expensive too. So um, it's it doesn't happen too often, but it certainly can happen. Yeah, and there's no. Um so there would be like a there would be a component of law would come into it that you're using frequencies you're not supposed to use or is that just you know I don't know I, I don't even, I've never I even had know. anybody say to me that they were trying to do this it's just always puzzled me that well, right that you and, I was wondering if you would be like breaking a law to go out with a receiver of some sort and be like and also sort of tracking collared animals the same way that a researcher right. is tracking them. Well, and so we had actually an interesting thing there. I'm not sure about the legality of it, but uh, researchers in general uh, keep a really tight lid on collar frequencies. You know, it's not information that they they share readily. So they keep that pretty close to the vest so that you don't have problems like that. But we had. We we talked to. The the reason I first started thinking about this is remember your friend up in Fairbanks who had all those moose collared. Mm-hmm. And one day I made a joke, being like, "I bet there's a lot of dudes in Fairbanks that like to track those moose with you, because you just had ones that were out in huntable areas, mm-hmm. you know." So, sorry, go ahead. Well, so the way the government, the FCC, divvies up these bandwidths, so like the federal government gets, you know, one six four dot whatever, and private uh, or academic institutions get. A totally different bandwidth. So, in theory, you shouldn't have all of this sort of overlapping. Uh, you know, when, when I call up a telemetry company and say order a bunch of collars, I don't get to pick and choose my my frequencies, but I can be relatively assured that someone else who's doing research in the same area through a university is not going to be anywhere close to where I am because they're on a totally different bandwidth. Okay. But it turns out that you can get these errant signals they're basically harmonics i don't know exactly how it works but there was another study going on in the area where we were doing our judas project that was looking at seca deer and so they had a whole bunch of collars on seca deer and we had a whole bunch of collars on on uh nutria and we were working in the same general area and so we were out there looking one day and we got a nice strong signal on one of our nutria and we're going through, and it's an area that we'd trapped out. We had a beautiful frozen marsh, snow all over the place, and we're tracking this thing down. And we kept bumping the seca deer, and, and there were like no tracks in the snow from Nutria. And we were like, "What the heck is going on here?" And so we started doing a little more digging, and and finally, I called the the graduate student that was doing that project up. I said, "Do you by any chance have a seca deer down in in this area?" And he said that he did and and I asked him what the frequency was and it was way off I and mean, it shouldn't even have been detectable on our uh radio system but as it turns out it was we were getting these weird harmonics uh, okay. that would even though it was the wrong system it still came in on our radio Oh man, we had a whole bunch of data we had to throw out because just we couldn't be oh, sure really? that what we were tracking was was uh nutria versus seca deer so it was a little bit of a learning curve there oh but, that's interesting uh, yeah but it was really neat to be able to see how these animals use the landscape um different animals released in different areas would move across the blackwater refuge system and it was amazing how similarly they they use the landscape you know there are certain points that almost every animal that we released no matter where we released them would pass by so it gave us some insights on 
how we might utilize those points as either trapping sites or detection sites. Um, That's yeah. So, so you're saying the way that the, the that the animals would be somehow funneled by the topography or landscape exactly. and whatever they're looking for yep. would would bring them by the yep. And what what would those features be? Points of yeah, points, points of, of land or channels, confluence like, of two tributaries, um, okay. any sort of point that sticks out. Uh, so yeah, it was. Uh, It'd give you a good idea to where to look in the future. Yeah, exactly. So did it did it start to have as the project went along, and you started to sort of get the sense like like holy shit, we maybe are going to catch them all. Yeah. Did it feel like a hard stop, or was it just like this kind of like gradual wind down? Well, we had a lot of real estate to cover, so. You know, when it was winding down in one area, we would move to another area. So, you know, we'd get these sort of peaks and valleys in our capture rates, and that helped keep the the staff uh, sort of motivated because, you know, even though their job is eradication, most trappers evaluate their success by how many critters they catch. And when you're trying to catch something that's not there, it's a pretty frustrating and morale busting. No, I would be, if I had that job, I'd be real excited every time we moved into a new area. Oh, yeah. And then the the guys were. but eventually we hit all the known populations and it became this this just drudgery of of kind of looking and looking and looking and so when you're relying on an observer based system to find an animal it's like looking for bigfoot you know you might never see him but you can't prove he doesn't exist right yeah that's the problem we're having with bigfoot yeah exactly <laughs> so no one will ever believe you uh because you can't prove something doesn't exist so one of the problems with an observer-based system is that people get fatigued, they get bored, they're looking for something, a needle in the haystack, they don't find it, they get distracted, maybe their text goes off and they happen to look at their phone while they drive by a floating nutrient turd in the, the water and they miss it, right? So we wanted to develop some other detection techniques that wouldn't be so reliant on a human observer. The human observer is incredibly important. You, you can't get this work done without people. But you got to come up with techniques that that sort of compensate for the weaknesses in in different systems of of detection. And so one of the things we had worked on that actually evolved from a trapping technique was the guys would would use what they called false beds. So they'd make a fake nutria bed along a waterway, set a foothold trap or a counter bear on it, and then the nutria would come along and see that and be like, "Oh, hey, there's a nutria bed." Yeah. Yeah. Just quick uh, tech question: When you guys would set up a when you guys would set up a bed set like that would you guys run a one-way drowner lock down to a stake yeah exactly okay yeah. so we were required to check any trap that held an animal alive every 24 hours but we had an exemption that allowed us to go as long as 76 i think or maybe even 96 hours if it was a, a killing trap yeah and so we did rely on the the uh, submersion sets to make sure that animals were dead and yes not- so what we're talking about there is imagine that you you got a trap set up at the surface of the water on a little bed or you could set set up just for illustration's sake imagine it set on the yeah trap set on the bank of a river that trap chain like the little tether of that trap has a thing called a one-way slide on it mm-hmm. and then you drive a stake into the riverbank right next to the trap and run a wire from that stake to another stake that's driven down into the bottom of the river out in the deep water. 
And when an animal gets hooked in that trap, especially an aquatic rodent, is instinctively just going to jump in the water and dive down to get away. So he runs that one-way sliding lock down that wire, but it won't come back up. Right. Yeah. So that was a effective and important tool for us. And these, these false beds became more and more important as a, a detection tool. So when we were going back through and, and mopping up these areas, we didn't want to set traps if we didn't have good reason to believe there were nutria there. Uh, so we would just make these false beds and check them. But the problem is when the tide would come up, it washed them away or the grass would grow up through them. So uh, one of the guys thought, well, hey, what if we put down a piece of plywood to keep the new grass from growing up? And then, well, that solved that problem, but it still washed away on a high tide. So he said, well, what if, we, yeah, what if we put it on a little piece of styrofoam? And then so we, we did that, and then we built a little rim around it to keep st- the wind and water from blowing stuff off the top. And we... So we, this thing evolved into this detection platform that we would put these things out by the hundreds. That's a good idea. And check them for scat. And we wanted to get a sense of how Nutria interacted with these devices. So we put some remote trail cameras on them. And we got a couple interesting things. And they were staked with a fiberglass pole. So if the water came up, they would actually float. And they would, so they would work all the time, whether the tide was high or down. And... We got one video where two nutria got on a single platform, and they were 24 inches square. So one was already up there, and the second one got up, and it was just too much weight. And the whole thing kind of tipped sideways. Water swept over the whole thing, and then the first nutria got off, and the second nutria got on, and all the water and everything just kind of swept out the opening. We had one one side that had an opening with a little brace on it that we could set a conibear trap on. Okay. So if we, we detected something, we could in, instantly turn it into a removal device. And so that got us thinking of like, man, we could be losing all these opportunities to detect sign if we're relying solely on the presence of scat yep. to, to do this. So one of the guys went back to the drawing board and came up with a really clever... Um, use for snare cable or aircraft cable and he, he took about a three or four inch piece of it and he frayed the ends of it and made a little tool to make it easy to do and built it sort of bent all the little strands backwards so it formed this like multi-pronged tiny little grappling hook and then he built a, a little support wire like a snare support wire out of stainless steel welding rod and attached that to the platform and then made this little figure eight loop system on the end of the welding wire to catch hair to put that snare in, and it would catch hair when the nutria brushed against it. So we we actually implemented that, and then we used the cameras to determine. We actually did a little study looking at the detectability of nutria on these devices by the camera, by the presence of scat, and by the presence of this hair snare. And the hair snare was like remarkably effective. It, it detected like 98% of the visits to the platform, whereas the uh, scat trick, the scat was you don't know if he had very to go. unreliable. Yeah, you don't know if he had to go or not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all of these techniques sort of evolved out of necessity, and you know, this had never been done before using the tools that we had available to us uh, anywhere in the world. There had been one successful eradication of nutria in England, uh, but it was all done using baited cage traps okay. on rafts. And so, you know, we had to sort of forge our, our own path on this. And uh, so all of this creativity stemming from our local trappers uh, 
was critical in sort of evolving our tools as the needs of the program changed as we approached eradication. So how many years into it, or how many years did it take to get there? So we began trapping out the Cora Blackwater in 2002. We trapped out the last known infested watershed in 20... Oh, gosh. 2013, I think, the Wicomico River was the last one we trapped out. And so I left the project in 2014 to take a promotion. Uh, And so the folks that have continued on in my absence uh, have continued to look, and they did clean out a few animals in that Wicomico watershed the following year. But it has now been... uh, two and a half years since we've detected a nutrient anywhere in this ecosystem that we've trapped. Now we've had some struggles, uh, you know, funding, uh, one of the criteria for eradication is institutional support has to continue throughout the length of the project. So you've got to have that commitment to provide the resources to get the job done. But bean counters like to look at, you know, results and the easiest result for them to measure is how many nutria we catch. And when you're not catching nutria, it's a lot easier to start sort of pulling back some of that funding. So yep. we've had some issues there. The staff is about a third of what it was uh, at the, the peak of our efforts. But we've tried to combat that by also increasing our efficiency. Uh, one of the things that I had started before I left the project was this concept of using scat-sniffing dogs to, to help us find nutria. And more importantly in helping us find nutria, because we had used dogs throughout the program to eliminate nutria as a hunting technique. But when you're trying to prove, they call it proof of freedom in the the, uh, invasive species, proof that an area is free of an invasive species, um, is to layer multiple detection technologies and techniques on top of each other to give you enhanced confidence that that there's nothing there. You know, you can never prove that they're gone, but by building a strong case of circumstantial evidence, you can reach a conclusion that's that the nutrient have been eradicated. Like h- human observation, no one's seeing any. They're not right. showing up in your uh, fur catchers on your floats. Exactly. Dogs aren't finding their droppings. Exactly. And so the dogs true value here is not in really finding nutria although it would be important if they did their true value is in, is enhancing our confidence that they are in fact gone um because their sense of smell is remarkable and a human observer can just is going off visual cues and you know you walk through this marsh and you you know you were in it today hunting for sika deer and Imagine. Would that, that have been a good nutria habitat? Oh, yeah, there? yeah, we removed probably 70 or 80 nutria from that general area. Really? Uh, yeah, right in front of where you were hunting. Uh, that, uh, that was all prime nutria habitat. Really? Yep. That's the um, kind of stuff they liked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So imagine having to cover like every inch of that marsh between where you were and that far wood line. And we had to scour that. And when you're down to maybe there's only one or two nutria left in there, what are the odds that, that two, three, or even four people just walking back and forth are actually going to find that one little piece yep. of scat or whatnot? So the oh, dogs. Oh, yeah. Well, Steve had a dead deer 150 yards from him, and, you know, without <laughs> GPS technology, it'd be hard to find that. Yeah, yeah, I had to, yeah, it's hard. I had to walk around there a little bit. Even I, like, I shot a waypoint from my tree stand to where I thought he was, you know, just like, 
a bearing and then a distance. Walked over there and and I was like, eh, I don't know. He's got to be in here somewhere. Yeah. And just, yeah, you could miss a lot. So, uh, right now, if I, like, do you think that if you, you know, within 20 mile radius where we're sitting right now, you don't think there's a single living nutrient? Or do you think there's got to be one that you've, you missed? You know, or, it wouldn't be one, right? It'd be, if right. there's one, there's no worry. Two. One boy and one girl. <laughs> exactly. And so what we know about their ability to reproduce and their detectability when they reach some sort of critical mass, uh, we would reasonably expect to be able to find them if over the course of two years that you know we've been looking, that if they had sort of rebuilt a, a small population, we probably would have detected it. I'm pretty confident of that. If you did so, find a small population, you'd have to get in there and just like be oh, like yeah. right hell's rapid fury. response. Yep, get it out as as quickly as possible. So I, I'm actually I have a lot of confidence in the crew that we put together and the folks that have remained on the project uh, are really committed and talented. And I think that uh, the fact that they're not finding anything is an indication that there's nothing to find. So how are those people that are still working on it, how are they coping with the job anymore? Well, so, you know, about five of them now are detector dog handlers. And, and honestly, part of my rationale for, for getting that tool off the ground is a bit of a morale booster. People love to work with dogs and, so even if on a daily basis they're not getting their own personal satisfaction by finding a nutria, they're getting some satisfaction of working with the dog and training the dog and making sure the dog is, is still up on, on top of things. Um, but even then, it, it's a challenge. You know, the, the, uh, the guys that have been with the project from the very beginning talk fondly of the good old days, you know, and, and they miss it. Um, you got to be careful. One of them might... Just to keep that job yeah. to retirement. <laughs> yeah, I wish, yeah, I, could, I, I, wish I could tell the story we heard the other day, not about Nutria, but I wish That's I could tell. That's my follow-up yeah. question already. I have it. Is, um, I, I got one more main question. No. Then you, can you mind? No, Just not at wait all. wait for one more main one. Um, have, so other places that deal with Nutria, okay, like I know like, you know, they still deal with them in Louisiana too. Like, have are other places that are dealing with infestations? Are they looking to what you guys did? Are you exporting the technologies, or is it just like so regionally specific? No, actually, that's a great question. And one of the one of the criteria that was built into the funding legislation that supported this program from the beginning was that that one of our missions was to help to educate everyone else is dealing with Nutri with tools and techniques that can be helpful elsewhere. Um, so we've, we put a lot of effort into outreach and working with other uh, folks that are dealing with Nutria. We still get a lot of calls from, from people dealing with Nutria. There's been a new outbreak or invasion in California where they had uh, previously, there'd been a small population that had been eliminated. So they, they didn't think they had a problem, but I think stuff is now moving down from, from the Northern States there. And uh, just this past summer, I was invited to visit uh, Holland, where they have a problem with nutria invading from Germany, coming across the border and and infiltrating their canal system, which is critical to 
life as they know it in Holland. Uh, so, you know, we've, we've shared this technology, these techniques with other folks throughout the world. But I started to talk earlier, and I'm not sure I ever finished the thought on the sort of the biological criteria you have to be able to meet uh, in order for oh, yeah, I got you messed eradication up on that. Yeah. to be feasible. And one of those is you have to be able to put every animal at risk. And that's why getting the private landowners on board was so important. Um, and, oh, gosh, all these thoughts running through my head. I've forgotten all the, the things that I used to be able to rattle off in all my slide presentations. But, yeah, it's been uh, two years, man. Yeah, it's been a little while. Um, so you have to have techniques that are uh, effective, so we, you know, work on all these different uh, different techniques, uh, techniques that are socially acceptable. So, you know, there are toxicants that could be applied to eliminate nutria, but they're probably also going to eliminate a whole lot of other species. So, so uh, that's an important feature. But when you start looking at those criteria and applying them to other areas, we were very fortunate in. Um, Maryland, the Delmarva Peninsula, which is that land spit between the Chesapeake Bay and the Atlantic Ocean that's comprised of the state of Delaware and the eastern shore of the Chesapeake portions of Maryland and Virginia, uh, is essentially an island. And the nutria that we had here were introduced. They didn't expand from somewhere else. It was an expanding population. And they're limited in their northern distribution uh, by winter weather. So essentially we had an island, a big island, but it, you know, it was an island that we could sort of get around and yep. eliminate. So if you look at places like Louisiana, which have an almost identical ecological problem to what we have here, they have the same sort of coastal marshes, the same suite of plant species that are impacted and the same effects of, of nutria, but it's orders of magnitudes greater than both in size and in numbers of nutria than we have here. They don't have as severe winters, so they've got more reproduction taking place. And they estimate that in Louisiana, in the ten year, the first 10 years after nutria were, were introduced, as few as probably 20 animals had attained populations of 20 million. Um, 20 million? Yeah, and they just, they're everywhere. And they're in adjacent states, so there's, there's just... Uh, there's no way to get around the problem, you know. So that one, uh, one of the other criteria is the risk of reinvasion needs to be near zero. So on the Delmarva Peninsula, we had that very low risk of reinvasion unless gotcha. someone chooses to bring one in. Louisiana, unfortunately, uh, surrounded by a sea of nutria, so they'll just have a constant influx. So they took a much different approach, um, and rather than uh, hiring trappers to you know, trapped down to a near zero population level. They looked at the history of nutria trapping activities in relation to the fur market. And they established a bounty system based on historical pelt prices uh, to encourage and incentivize trappers to uh, pursue nutria in the hopes that they could depress the population enough that they wouldn't see the amount of damage that they, they did. So they monitored that by conducting annual vegetation surveys and they take a helicopter, fly these, they had like 1,500 miles of transects or something like that. And every time they reached a, a nutria, they, it's called an eat out when they sort of destroy a, a area of marsh, they'd fly a circle around it and they'd 
do that every year and measure the size of those circles and and if they were contracting then they were sort of moving in the right direction if they were getting bigger they weren't taking enough nutria so <clears throat> to put it in context with maryland uh, over the life of the project, and you remember earlier I said, you know, as many as 50,000 nutria on Blackwater Refuge alone, <clears throat> we've removed about 14,000 nutria over the lifespan of this project. Far fewer than we anticipated at the beginning. Uh, and if you compare that to Louisiana, their uh, incentive program, they remove, their goal is to remove about 400,000 nutria a year. And uh, that seems to be enough, the target that keeps that marsh damage at a somewhat acceptable level. Gotcha. So other places that have expressed an interest, uh, we've had visits from folks in South Korea, China, Israel. Um, we were invited to participate in a big workshop in uh, the Pacific Northwest a few, oh, probably 10 years ago now, um, uh, but then it even crosses species. We were actually asked to come and consult on a beaver infestation problem in Tierra del Fuego in yep. extreme South America, where they were introduced. Ironically, about the same time that Nutri were introduced here, we did, Argent- we did a we did a large aquatic yeah, rodent swap. swap. Yep. You ever see a capybara? <laughs> yep. Yeah, I saw some capybara last winter, man. Nutri are actually pretty closely related to capybara. Right, okay. Yep. Um, but the Argentinian military brought North American beaver in to uh, establish uh, fur for military clothing. Uh, so they released them, and they thought they'd have trappers go out. And Well, as it turns out, they didn't have a trapping community. People didn't know what to do with them, and they expanded and proliferated, and now they're... Uh, they should have tried to introduce trappers, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cut, uh, cut, cut a few, cut a male and a female uh, trapper loose out there. <laughs> our uh, our agency's been approached about uh, conducting some training activities down there to to help uh, kind of educate folks on how to effectively trap beaver and and whatnot. But part of that is, you know, the goal is eradication, and and trapping for fur and trapping for eradication are two different things. Yeah, for, yeah. Uh, for reasons we explored yeah. here yeah. tonight. Yeah. It's a good story, man. Yeah, it uh, it was a pretty exciting chapter in my career. Yeah, the story uh, starts to make its own gravy, you know. It's like yeah. just got like a lot to it, man. Yeah. Yanni, what was your uh, what was your conclusion? Conservation through eradication. Uh, when Steve uh, first told me that, I was like, man, that's a ringer. Um, now you pretty much answered it, but I was going to ask like where the closest po- next population is to the south. And then, you know, if it could come this way, but it sounds like you have that, the barrier of the Chesapeake Bay that they're not going to swim. They are Are in relatively close proximity in Virginia Beach uh, is probably the closest place that we know about. Virginia Beach has some? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that whole stretch, that southeastern Virginia and northeastern North Carolina, that whole complex down in the... Albemarle Sound and Alligator River National Wildlife Refuge, Madame Mesquite National Wildlife Refuge, oh, yeah. and then right up into the intensively urbanized areas in Virginia Beach, the, all the the um, drainage systems and whatnot. There's uh, nutria on the Naval Air Force bases down there. God, it's got to be good for alligators, man. Well, in Louisiana, it is the uh, a lot of the the nutria trappers sell the carcasses to alligator farmers. So they yeah. get five bucks for the tail that they turn in, and then they get a buck or two for the carcass that they provide. So, 
So, but you know, the Chesapeake Bay, the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay is about 14 miles wide. That would be a pretty significant dispersal effort to get a, a new tree to swim across that. Yep. Uh, so, the narrowest point of the bay, uh, outside of the the mouth of or the head of the bay where the Susquehanna River feeds into it, is actually right here in Dorchester County. It's about four and a half miles across. Uh, to Calvert County. And in the 1990s, they found a small population in a tributary uh, of the Potomac River. And the Maryland Department of Natural Resources trapped about 50 animals out there, and they've, they've never seen a resurgence of that population, although occasionally we get reports. You guys need to move on the Norway rat. <laughs> Eliminate rats. Yeah, you know what an interesting uh, tidbit is... Uh, my brother was telling me that Anchorage is the world's largest port city with no rats. Interesting. And when they get a boat that comes in, if they they inspect it, if they find rats on it, that boat does not touch shore. Yep. Yeah. Well, you've been to New Zealand. Their biosecurity uh, pro- procedures are pretty remarkable. Yeah. When you fly in, you, they put out literature about making sure your hiking boots don't have weed seeds and your camping equipment. Oh yeah, didn't you get didn't you didn't you get messed with for having muddy boots coming into New Zealand? Yeah, I don't know if we got I can't remember now if we got, it was a long time ago if we got messed with or if it was just protocol, but they basically took all of my fishing gear, not the not the flies and and reels and poles themselves, but the uh you know, clothing type gear and all of our camping gear and they took it into a room. I think you can actually watch it, and they basically fumigated yeah. it, yeah. and then they put it in a plastic bag and said, "Here you go, have fun." Yeah, yeah, yeah they take their invasive species stuff pretty seriously, and they're not they're, that they don't have a thousand invasive species, right? Already, well, that's yeah. why they're they're, they're uh, and they're working aggressively to try to eliminate them as much as possible. So, yeah. right, yeah, we saw so, traps all over the place for yeah. uh, what they call stoat, which is uh, a little weasel. 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 Yeah. Um. Steve, you got any final things that fall so far out of context that you didn't get a chance to bring them up? Oh, man. So much. I, I was initially wondering if I could possibly talk about this for two hours. And Dude, we, we doornailed it, man. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, I think the, the one thing I'd like to just reiterate as a concluding thought is is a plea for people to, you know, recognize the importance of traditionally urban or rural values and activities and the contributions they make to modern day conservation. You know, this project would have been extremely difficult without the local knowledge we were able to tap into through uh, the trapping community. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that crosses species and, you know, it's a segment of our society that's much maligned and, and there are routinely efforts to eliminate trapping and the the kinds of traditional wildlife management tools that 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 we've used, and you know they still have an incredibly important place in a modern society and and uh I guess that's something even i think uh non trapping sports people uh often don't think about trapping that much and don't have the support yeah uh, all you bird support. doggers yeah a very ill there's yeah. a very uh ill advised group of folks um that tried to this is my concluding thought that the last year during the last uh, election cycle had tried to get through an initiative in montana to ban trapping on public land 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I thought of, you know, I had in my, in my pocket like a dozen reasons why I thought that was a bad idea. One of the things that my pocket, one of the things that my pocket did not include was the one the director of the state wildlife agency um, came out and said, why uh, would we be putting ourselves into a situation to pay government people to do something that you have other people paying us to go do? Mm -hmm. Speaking of beaver removal, he's like, we do not have the budget. Right. To take care of all of the conflicts, agricultural, road, other, all of just the beaver conflicts mm-hmm. alone. Yep. You got a whole squad of people out there who, you know, are running like little small businesses trapping beavers. Right. And you want to take that away from them. someone's going to, those beavers are going to cause problems and then we're going to have government guys doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, it yeah, was, and that, that measure was soundly defeated. Yeah, I actually have a second concluding thought, concluding hey, concluding fine, thought that uh, want to just make sure I emphasize the importance of sort of partnerships in tackling monumental conservation issues like this. And without the joint efforts of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the Maryland Department of Natural Resources, Tudor Farms, and the hundreds of private landowners that supported, as well as a ton of of several dozen of uh, non-governmental organizations like the Maryland Trappers Association and the Salisbury Zoo and, and other groups that were that sort of rally around the environment that, that really helped to generate the support to keep the funding in place and, and all that sort of thing. Those partnerships are just critical for um, the success of programs like this. All right. So be a good partner. That's right. That's my final concluder. All right. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need, and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.